Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the Met, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Now, enjoy the message. How are we doing this morning? Good, good, good. Unfortunately, this is the last week of this series we've been in called Vacation. I've really enjoyed this, this series, and, but I couldn't think of a better way to end this series than to have Corey Bomer. He is our youth pastor here, and uh, how are you doing, Corey? I'm glad you're here. I'm doing good. I'm feeling good. I'm excited. Okay. Uh, I'm excited what we get to talk about today. It's one now one of my new favorite books of the Bible. Oh, that's, so, that's, yeah. that's good. We don't give it away just yet. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody that uh, what the youth have been doing, even though we've been kind of quarantined and all spread out all the place, they've still been doing a lot of great things for the youth. Yeah, we've tried. It's been a different um, time in ministry, which is just like what everybody else is experiencing, trying to figure things out and this new way of life. And so um, our thing is we're trying to figure out how do you um, hang out with students when you can't hang out with students. And so we've done some things uh, throughout quarantine and this summer where we've done our Wednesday night live services, um, which have been really good. Our team is awesome and they um, we have some really good team members that can help put something together that's really good for your students. So we've done that. We've also done um, drive-in movie up here in our parking lot so we could all spread out. And we got this massive screen um, to watch that on. We've done a Fortnite tournament. Okay, nobody plays Fortnite. That's okay. <laughs> students do. So we had over 100 um, students, mostly guys, um, but some girls that jumped on and were in our Fortnite tournament. And then a couple weeks ago, we had our verified girls' night mm-hmm. on campus, which was really cool. We had over 100 middle school and high school um, girls up here spread out all over um, the sanctuary and uh, worshiping and just hearing how God verifies them and not the world. And so um, it's actually been really cool. Our life group leaders have done a great job of staying connected with their students and doing some activities. And so, yeah. Good stuff. And good. we're about to bring everybody back, hopefully. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to get back to. So hopefully when school starts back, we'll be able to meet on campus again in here, spread out like we do on the weekends. But we are excited about that. That's good stuff. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Well, uh, in vacation, what we've been doing, every time a pastors come up here, we've asked them, what do you like to do on vacation? So yeah. why don't you tell us? Sure. So me and my family, we love to go on a road trip. Any road trip people in here? You like a good road trip? You can clap. You don't have, you can, yeah, whatever you want. Raise your hand. So um, we like to go on a road trip. And a couple years ago, we went to the Grand Canyon. And so that was a lot of fun. But I shouldn't have looked up something before I went because it's beautiful, but it's also terrifying. You see the pictures and there's all the railing and you're like, oh, great. There's not that much railing at the Grand Canyon. And so I looked up just for giggles, um, how many people die on average at the Grand Canyon every, every year. Um, come to find out it's 12 people. And so not everybody dies from falling in the canyon, but some people do, and that's enough for me. And so my kids would be running around. I'd be yelling. I'd probably look like a crazy person, like, stop running. You can't fly. Stop it. And um, so we liked the road trip. Uh, last summer, we went to South Dakota to Mount Rushmore, which was fun. And um, you learn a lot on a road trip. And my son learned something going to and from South Dakota. He learned that 
go to the bathroom when we're in a city because there's hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, in between where there are no places to stop. And he would always say, I don't have to go. And then in the middle of nowhere is when he has to go the most. And it's not just like, hey, I have to go when we find it. It's like, I gotta go. He's screaming. And so just like every good parent, you just say, pull over and, you know, he's a boy. So let's just let him. But here's what he learned is... um, because there's an art to this. <laughs> yeah. if, if you're a guy, you know this. When you get out and you have to stand in the perfect positioning so traffic going this way doesn't get an eyeful and traffic coming this way doesn't, you know. And so he figured out the hard way though because we pull over the side of the road this way. He's got to go so bad. He just jumps up and he turns this way. <laughs> um, but luckily no cars came by. And so we were, we were good. But when you're on a road trip, um, there's two important things that you must have, and that is munchies and music. You must have a giant bag of, you know, nutritious, healthy um, snacks like chips and candy bars and sodas, because when you go on vacation, the diet is gone. You don't worry about the diet, but then you also have to have some good tunes, and we have a pretty good playlist that covers it all um, from Motown to indie to 90s grunge, to James Taylor. I'm a big James Taylor fan, mm-hmm. all the way to the Descendants soundtrack, oh, yeah. um, which is so important <laughs> on a road trip. And so you got to have those two things. But we love a good road trip, and which is good yeah. because, Rob, that's where we're going. Today is we're going on a little road trip from Susa to Jerusalem. But before um, we get there, we want to, because we were at Jerusalem before. We, we, we were in the there. promised land, yeah. but somehow we're no longer we're there. there. So why don't you tell us why we're not there anymore? Yes, uh, I, I, I was so excited when you uh, talked about doing this story because it's one of my favorite stories. But, you know, kind of going back to road trip, you know, of doing that. I'm not a great road tripper. I mean, it's not, but I was scarred for life, you know, in that uh, taking a road trip one time because I was like Ezra. I had to go and I can remember getting outside of the car and going and my dad turns the lights on. You know, right there. <laughs> it turns the lights out. So I'm in Scar for Life. So I, my road trip is to the airport. That's kind of where I like to road trip, to the airport, and then we get there. But uh, we are going on a, uh, a road trip today. And before we get to that story, we got to kind of get to the backstory of what happens. And the backstory really starts when uh, the Israelites moved into the promised land. Remember, God brings them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, and he gives them the very own place. And so they move into the promised land and they get settled in there and everything's to be fine, but they start looking around. They start going, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not like everybody else. Everybody else got a king. We don't have a king. So they go to God and they say, God, we want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king. See, that was their first mistake. But see, God doesn't want us to be like everybody else. God wants us to be different so that we can make a difference. But they're like going, no, 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 we want a king. And so about 1050 BC, God gives them their very first king. And for the next 400, 450 years, they go through a bunch of different kings. There were some good kings. There were some bad kings. There were kings that would follow what God wanted them to do, kings that wouldn't listen to God. And every time there was a bad king or somebody who wouldn't follow God, God would raise up a prophet. That's why when you read your Old Testament, you see, you read about a lot of prophets. You read about Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Malachi, all of these prophets that God would raise up and he would speak to, speak through. He would speak to them to go tell the king to cut it out. Cut it out and go back and start doing things the way God wants you to do it. And when the king would listen to the prophet, God wouldn't pass judgment on them. 
But if the king wouldn't listen, then God would let him face the consequences. Well, all of this kind of just boiled down and came to a head about 605 BC. There was a guy by the name of Jehoiakim who was on the, the, the throne at this time, and he was a really bad king. I mean, he was a king that did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so Jeremiah the prophet's telling him, hey, cut this out, cut this out, stop doing this. And he's like going, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. And so God says, fine, fine. You like worshiping all these foreign gods so much. How about we just let those foreign nations come in and take over? And so he wakes up one day and guess who's on his doorstep? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, this, this was the world power at the time. They were the world power there. And he's there, and for the next year and a half, they have a battle for Jerusalem. Well, during this battle, King Jehoiakim dies. He dies during the battle, and so what they do is they elevate his son to be the next king. Now, he's only 18 years old. He's just seen his dad die, and about three months into his reign, he just lifts up his hands and says, I'm done. We can't do it. We're never going to beat this guy. We might as well give up. And he opens up the gates and Nebuchadnezzar comes in and they ransack the place. They take whatever they want and they cart off Jehoiakim's son and about 10,000 other uh, Israelites to be slaves in Babylon. He carts them off to do that. But before he leaves, he gets a guy by the name of Zedekiah and he appoints him as the king. And history says he's the very last king they will ever have. And he's kind of a puppet king. He doesn't really have a lot of power because Nebuchadnezzar put him there to basically collect taxes from the people and send him the check. And Nebuchadnezzar, before he leaves, he says, as long as you keep sending me a check every month, everything's gonna be fine. But when you don't send me that check, I'm coming back. For the next five, six years, he, he goes along with it. He's doing everything fine. But then all of a sudden, he starts again thinking, I'm the king. I'm the king. Why should I send another king stuff? I'm not gonna do this anymore. And Jeremiah's there going, don't do it, don't do it. You gotta do what you're supposed to do. And he goes, no, I'm the king. And so guess what happens? Nebuchadnezzar shows back up. But this time, instead of having a battle, he's gonna wait him out. He's gonna wait him out. And for two years, he doesn't let anything go in or out of Jerusalem. He's gonna starve him out. And what happens, famine takes over the city and the disease starts taking over the city. And they are so weak that basically Nebuchadnezzar just walks in and controls the city, takes it over. But he's not happy with having the city. He wants to make sure Jerusalem will never rise up, will never be able to defend himself again. So he busts down all the walls, tears off all the gates. He leaves the place in ruin when he goes back, leaves it in ruin. Well, fast forward about 50 years, what we're gonna see is Persia rises up and becomes the next world power. They defeat the Babylonians. And King Cyrus of Persia, at that time when, they, when he takes over, he frees all of the slaves in Babylon. So all of these Jewish people are allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But they go back to a city that's the shell of itself. I mean, it's just, it's devastating to them to see what's happened to their city of Jerusalem. And for the next hundred years, they're having to deal with what's going on. And they don't rebuild it. They don't do anything. They just feel like God has forgotten them. And then what God does, he puts a burden on the heart of a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And he tells Nehemiah, I need you to go back and I need you to change what's going on in Jerusalem. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story. That's right. So we find Nehemiah um, in the capital of Persia, Susa, the citadel, the winter residence of King Artaxerxes. And he is there and it even tells you the month, which is interesting. It says in the month of Kislev, 
which if you're like me, you read a word like that in the Bible, you usually just keep on going because you have no <laughs> idea what Kislev is. Kislev is actually a month in the Jewish calendar that is our late November, early December, which is important to know because of what happens in chapter two. And so he's there and his brother and some, a group of men come to visit and they begin to tell Nehemiah of what has happened in Jerusalem, that there's no longer walls and no longer gates and that everything is in rubble and it's just destructed. And even though Nehemiah was born in captivity and has never even been to Jerusalem, his heart was broken because God's people and God's promised land were broken. And so Nehemiah begins to weep and he begins to mourn and he begins to pray and he begins to fast. And we see that in his prayer right after this in chapter one, he begins to pray and he prays for um, not only the people like they're separate, he prays for God's people as him being a part of it. He says, our sin, when he's praying for the people's sin, and then at the very end of his prayer, it says something interesting. Uh, it says, and I pray that I would have mercy in the sight of this man, which kind of catches, it caught me off guard. I was like, wait, what, what is he talking about? Mercy in the sight of the man. And you know, because of the next verse, what he's talking about, he says, for I am cupbearer to the king. You, you realize that uh, Nehemiah actually works for um, King Artaxerxes, he is the cupbearer, which means he brings him his food and his wine, but before he gives it to him, he actually has to taste it just to make sure that it's not poisoned. And you thought you had a dead-end job. <laughs> but this was actually a very high-profile, very respected position in the kingdom, but because besides the queen, Nehemiah probably spent more time with the king than anyone else. He was trusted and the king would listen. And so in chapter two, it starts and it says it's in the month of Nisan, which is about four months later, March and April in our calendar, about four months later from when it started. And you have to realize that his heart has been broken. He has been praying and seeking God's plan and purpose for his life to help the people of Jerusalem for four months. And he's there in front of the king and he's doing his job. He's serving the king and the king says, hey, I noticed something is different about you. Um, I, I noticed that you're sad. It's not a sickness. I can tell it's a sadness of heart and I've never seen you this way before in my presence. And Nehemiah is, is able to share why he is broken about the people of Jerusalem, the promised land being broken, breaks his heart. And he's able to share that with the king and the king looks at him and he says, so what are you requesting of me? And in other words, what, what do you want me to do about this? And it says that Nehemiah prayed. And I'm sure um, when the king asks you a question, you can't, you can't stall, you can't wait. And let me think, oh, hold on just a second, king. I'm pretty sure you have to respond fairly quickly. And I think because of all the months that Nehemiah had spent in prayer, I just picture his prayer being something like, give me the words, God be with me in this, in this moment, or Thank you for the time to get prepared for this moment. And then he begins to lay out his plan, the plan that God had given him over four months. And it starts with this. It starts with King, um, first of all, I know I work for you, but I'm gonna have to leave for a while. I'm requesting that I can leave to go back to Jerusalem to help them rebuild. Um, secondly, I'm gonna need some letters from you um, because as I travel, I have to go through all these nations who probably won't let me go through. Um, but if I have a letter from you, they're gonna let me pass. And then lastly, probably the biggest ask, he said, 
Um, I need a letter, which this shows you that he had a, a very um, specific plan. I need a letter to Asaph. He had a name who is in charge of the king's forests. I need a letter to him to allow us to take lumber to repair the walls and to fix the gates. Think about how bold that moment is. King, um, I need to leave. Um, I need you to help me get there and I need you to fund the whole project. And here's what I believe. I believe that Nehemiah was able to stand up boldly to the king because he had spent so much time kneeling humbly to the king of kings. Because of his time in prayer and his time planning with God, he was able with confidence to stand up for what he knew God wanted him to do. And so the king says, okay. He, he, he allows all of his requests. He says, I'm, I'm on board. Not only does he give him what he asked for, he also makes him governor of Jerusalem. As you go, you're gonna be governor. And he gives him people, men from his army to go with him on the trip. And that's where we start our road trip. And if you look at our map, that we have, it'll show you um, how far it is from Susa to Jerusalem. And it'll show you all the different nations that they have to go through just to get there. And here's the cool thing, is the letters that he requested, not only does it allow Nehemiah and those men to go through those nations, it also makes those nations give Nehemiah any supplies he needs as he makes his way on this travel. So it's about 900 miles on this trip from Susa to Jerusalem, which probably took Nehemiah and these guys about three months. So four months of prayer, um, three months of travel. He has spent a lot of time with this plan on his heart. So when he got there, I can only imagine that he was ready to go. And most of us, we would show up and we'd be like, all right, here's what we're doing. Let's, let's do this, do that. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a good leader. And when he got there, he spent three days. And on the third night, he walked around without telling anybody why he was there. He walked around and he evaluated and he assessed the damage that had happened because he wanted to make sure that his plan was as it needed to be to fix the problem. And so the next day he gathers all the people. And I love this. I can just picture it in my mind. It's a Braveheart William Wallace moment where he's rallying the troops, getting them ready. And he starts to tell them about um, the thing that God has put on his heart to rebuild Jerusalem. And that's why he's there. And then he begins to tell them that the blessing that he has received from the king and that the king is actually paying. He's toting the bill. He's paying for all of it. And the people get together and I love their response. They say, let us rise up and build. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's what they did. <laughs> they, they all banded together. They all banded around Nehemiah's plan and they started to build. Mm. But the thing that we need to understand is this was all possible because the first thing Nehemiah did was he asked for help. He asked God for help. That when he heard what was going on in Jerusalem, when he heard what, what uh, situation they were in, the first thing he did, he asked God. He asked for help. He went to God in prayer. And not only did he ask God for help, but he acknowledged what put him in that situation in the first place. So he acknowledged the fact that we haven't listened to you, God. We haven't followed your commands. We haven't put you first, God. And that's what's put us in this situation. And we know the only way that we're gonna get out of it, the only way that we're gonna get out of it is we've gotta follow your plan going forward. So God, give us your ways. Tell us what you wanna do because we wanna do it your way. And that's what we all have to realize in our own lives 
It's the fact that, that when we do things that we shouldn't be doing, we get ourselves in a mess. And the first thing when we find ourselves in a mess, when we find our life in a mess, when we find our marriage in a mess, find our finances in a mess, the first thing that we need to do is we need to ask God for help. We need to go to him in prayer. But not only that, we need to acknowledge what we did to get ourselves in that situation in the first place and say, God, this is what it is. I know I went away from you, but now I'm gonna follow you. So God, lead me. Lead me to how we can go because I wanna get out of this mess. I wanna rebuild my life. I wanna get us back to where we are. It's about following him. Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. How many of you have ever bought something and it, you had to assemble it? It was assembly required. You know, you've had to put those together. You've done that before? Okay, all of you that have got that, okay, I want you to be honest here, that when you've got that thing to, to put together and you pull out the instructions, do you kind of just look that over but kind of look at the pictures and then figure everything out on your own? Are you the one of those guys? Okay, y'all online, do that too. If you're one of those people that you kind of peruse it, you kind of look at the pictures and you go, I love yeah. how all the guys are raising yeah, their hands. Yeah. I got this, I got this. You put it together. Okay, that was me. I used to do that. that was, that's what I did until I got one of those swing sets for my kids when they were little, you know, those wooden ones that you put in your backyard that have the Ford attached and the rock climbing wall, you know. If you've ever gotten one of those, when you get it, it like comes in 10,000 pieces. I mean, it is unbelievable what this thing to put it together. And when you pull out the instructions, the first thing that it asks you to do is to take all the pieces out and put them in a particular order. They give you a, like a, a map of how to put everything in, in, in the order. And I'm thinking, it's gonna take me all day just to do that. I mean, I'm never gonna get this thing up. So I skipped step one. I'm not doing that. I'm doing, I can figure this thing out. So I'm just kind of looking at it and I'm putting it together and it's going pretty good. And then all of a sudden I have this piece in my hand that I figure out was supposed to be over there that I've already put another piece in its place. And you know, the only way to finish it is you gotta take the whole thing down and start over. That's when I knew it was all about following the instructions. That's when I knew it was all about following instructions. My wife actually, she tells anybody, she goes, if you got anything to fix, give it to Rob because he will read the instructions. I'm gonna make sure I do it that way. Well, that's what Nehemiah was saying, is we know we did it our way. We know we did it our way, but now we're gonna do it your way, God. We're gonna do it your way. And that's what you have to do. And that's what you have to do in your life. You gotta pray for God. I'm gonna do it your way. And what you find when you pray is this. It's Ephesians 3.20. It's the fact that God's gonna do so much more for you than you ever could hope for or could imagine, okay? You gotta realize Nehemiah, as, as Corey was saying, he was a slave, okay? He was a slave. Slaves don't get time off. Slaves can't go ask the king for time off. But see, God gave him favor in the eyes of the king. Here's a king who doesn't even worship his God, and he gives him favor to this. And so what does he do? He gives him all the materials, all the, the money, and makes him the governor. He gives him the authority to actually pull this off. God will do so much more. So in the midst of a mess, the first thing we do is we ask for help. We go to God. But not just to God, because when, when Nehemiah got there, he realized he can't build that thing on his own. He can't, he can't build the wall by himself. He needed help. He needed other people to be around that. And you've got to realize the same thing. You can't fix yourself on your own. That's why God puts people around you and you need to ask for help. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he wrote this. He says this in Ecclesiastes 4. He says, two are better than one because they get a better return on their labor, okay? Now, let me tell you, when I was putting up that, 
swing set, I realized that actually five are better than one, okay? And it, it's more people that help me get that thing up, the better. I was just using anybody I can. But that's what it's saying is you, you, you shouldn't try to do things on your own. And it says, because if one of them falls, there's somebody there to pick them up. But then he says this, he goes, pity. He says, pity anyone who falls and doesn't have anybody there to help them. See, that's why here at the Met, we believe that circles are better than rows. Right now, y'all are all in rows, but we want you a part of a circle. We want you a part of a group because we understand that all of you are gonna go through something sometime. There's gonna be some slip up, some mess up, something that's happening in your life that you're gonna need a circle around you to help you rebuild, to help you get back where you are. We don't want you to, to have a trouble in your marriage and have to do it all alone. We don't want you to have trouble in your finances and have to do it all on your own. We don't want you to have trouble in your own life and have to do it on your own. We want you in a group. So if you're here today and you're not part of a group, don't leave without talking to one of our, our, our staff about how can I get in a group. And if you're watching online, just say right now, I wanna be a part of a group. We've got staff, we've got uh, pastors online that would love to get you connected. But you have to be a part of what's going on. And Solomon ends by saying this in, in verse 12. He says that um, a cord of three strands, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And what he was talking about is the fact that when you make God the center and you listen to his plan and you wrap yourself around God's plan and you get people with you that will wrap around God's plan, that's when you're gonna see the change. And that's what was happening there in Jerusalem. They got on and we started seeing change. That's right. I love that there was the ask, and then you see the act. Um, in chapter three, after he had rallied the troops and got them all, all chapter three is, is if you read it, you're going to be like, whoa, this is a bunch of names. It's name after name and group after group, and the assignments that they had and the work that they were doing on the wall, and they all did it together, which is awesome. But we live in a world of social media. Um, how many of you have a social media account of some most of us, uh, how many of you have an opinion? Most of us, and what happens is for some reason, um, we have an opinion about everything and we feel like that the whole world needs to hear that opinion and so we share it on social media. But what that does for us, it kind of confuses us a little bit because we believe that to change the world, we can do it with our opinion. But to change the world, we're gonna have to do it with our actions. And so that Satan is not worried. The devil is not worried about those of us who sit on the sidelines and just talk about what it's gonna take to make this world a better place. But what makes him nervous is when those of us get into the game and actually start putting our words into action and doing great things for God. But when you take that step and when you start to put it into action, it brings us to our second point. You need to make sure that you anticipate resistance. Mm -hmm. Anticipate resistance. One thing that Pastor Bill always says is where God is building, Satan is blasting. The Bible says that the thief comes in the night to steal, kill, and destroy. He's going to do whatever it takes when you start building something for God to, to wreck it, to stop it. And that's what we see in Nehemiah uh, chapter 4 verse 6. It says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart, 
But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So they were there and they're building up this wall and it's halfway there. And for most people, that's exciting because you're a you know, half glass full person. But there's also another part of us who are half glass empty. So when you look at this wall, you're like, that's awesome. But man, we still got a lot to do. And you just have to imagine how tired they were and exhausted because not only did they have to build this wall, which was probably really difficult, but before they could even build it, they had to get rid of all of the rubble and the rock and destruction that had been there for over a hundred years. Think about it this way. Um, any Fixer Upper fans, the show Fixer Upper, uh, I like it. If you watch it, um, they go and buy these dilapidated homes for these people. And then you're looking at it and the people are like, oh, these are not good. And then they reveal it like, oh, these are great, right? Because they fix it up. But before they can make it great and build it up, they do my favorite day, which is demo day. And they go into the house and they tear down walls and rip up floors and take down cabinets. And it's all there on the ground. And then they have to take it away so they can start to build it up. And that's the same thing in our lives as well. A lot of times we see something in our lives that is broken, and especially if you're a guy like me, you just wanna have one conversation in it for it to be fixed and let's move on, but that's not how it works. Think about a marriage. If a marriage is broken, it didn't get broken overnight and it's not gonna get fixed overnight. It's, it's taken many, many, many years of doing things, maybe not the best way that got to this situation. But sometimes to fix a marriage, which, man, that's what God wants. He wants you to have a healthy marriage. Sometimes to fix a marriage, you have to come in and you have to deconstruct all the things that you built up to get you where you are. And it takes time and it takes effort. And when you're in the middle of fixing something that you know needs to be fixed, guess who's coming to knock at your door to try to distract you and get you off the plan? Just like Nehemiah, the enemy. He's coming. So how do we respond? What do we do? And I love what Nehemiah and the people that are working on the wall, their way of handling this. In Nehemiah 4.17, it says, those who carried materials did their work with one hand, and held a weapon in the other. They were ready. They were expectant. They knew that some point as they built up, Satan would come to knock down. The enemy was coming. So they worked. They built on this wall with a hammer, with a spear in the other hand. They would work. They would work. And when the enemy would come, they wouldn't quit and give up. They would go and they would fight the enemy. And then they would get back to the hammer and start building. And that's exactly what we need to do. Your marriage is broken. If it's broken and you know it, and you want a healthy, strong marriage, you start building it up, you start building. Guess what? The enemy's gonna come and he's gonna start putting these thoughts in your mind that's saying, hey, this is gonna take too long. It's not gonna get fixed. Let's just move on. He's gonna start putting these thoughts in your mind and say, hey, it's not worth it. Um, you know, it, they're not thinking like you're, th he's gonna give all these reasons why you should stop. Don't stop. Turn to the spear, fight the enemy, and get back to the hammer. 
Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. It's not the greatest, but you, you know it's a little bit broken. You wanna build it up. Start building it up. Start doing things. Start hanging out with your kids more. Start spending time talking about things in life and start building up. But guess what? Satan's coming. The enemy's coming to distract you. Don't quit. Turn to the spear, fight off the enemy, and get back to the hammer. Maybe it's your finances. Um, you know, we all know that we, we need to glorify and edify God with our finances. I mean, it's his money anyway. We're just, he's just letting us have it while we're here. And so we're like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna glorify God. I know times are hard right now, but I'm gonna glorify you. I'm gonna get on a budget. I'm gonna maybe give to the church. Or something. I'm gonna give to people in need. I'm gonna do things that honor you with my money. Guess what? The enemy's coming and he's coming with a new pair of shoes, a nice car and a big old house. <laughs> And he's gonna say, no, you really need this right now. And you're like, well, I'm building here. I'm here. Don't quit what you're doing. Stop. Take the, take the spear, fight off the enemy and get back to the hammer. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's your faith. Maybe your faith feels broken. And maybe you need to start building it up. Maybe, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna attend church more. I'm gonna come and hear God's word. I'm gonna open my Bible at my house. I'm gonna join a life group. I'm gonna get into a Bible study. I'm gonna start to serve. I'm gonna do things that can build up my faith and I have a hammer and I'm working. The enemy's gonna come and he's gonna try to distract you. Don't give up and don't quit. Turn, take your spear, fight off the enemy because he's coming and get back to the hammer. Get back to building what God wants you to build. Because when God calls you to build something, be ready because the enemy is coming to stop you. He is, he is. I mean, I, I think that's a perfect picture for everybody of what the Christian life looks like. It's the fact that when you're doing what God wants you to do, Satan's gonna do everything in his power to stop you from doing it. It is what you were talking about. It's, it's John 10, 10. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. God came that you'd have life and life to the full. And, and so God wants the best for you, but Satan wants to take it away. That's why 1 Peter 5, 8, it talks about that. He says, you know, be alert. You need to be ready to that because Satan, it goes around like a, a roaring lion. He's seeking who he, can make, he, who he can devour, who he can take down. So we have to be ready. But here's the thing that I always hold on to. I hold on to Isaiah 54, 17, and it says, no weapon formed against you shall prevail. See, what you have to understand is when you choose to do it God's way, you are not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. Amen. See, see, Satan has already been defeated. What he wants you to figure, think is that you can't win. He already knows he's already lost, but he wants you to think you can't win. But you've got to realize that no, anything he's trying to do to stop you from what God wants you to do, he can't win. The only way is this if you give up, and that's what he tries to do. He tries to make you to stop. He tries to make you think, you know, my marriage will never get better. My finances will never get better. My life is never gonna get better. No, when you do it God's way, you win. That's what this whole thing is about. And what they did, they didn't listen to all that that was going on. They fought it off and they kept building the wall and the wall got higher and higher and higher. And it was to that point where it was almost complete. Only thing they had to do was hang the, the gates back on the wall. But see, the enemy didn't give up, didn't give up. See, these powerful guys that we were talking about, Sam Ballot and, and uh, Geshem and Tobiah and all these, all these people, these were these powerful warlords that lived in the surrounding areas around Jerusalem, okay? And what they were able to do in the past without the wall, they could just come in anytime they want, take whatever they want, and then go back to their own place. So this was their meal ticket. So when they saw the wall going up, they're going, wait a minute, we won't be able to come in and have our way with them anymore. But we gotta make sure this stops, 
We gotta, we gotta stop this. So they figured out what they do. They figured out if we're going to stop this, we gotta get Nehemiah off the wall. We gotta get him down off the wall. If we can get him somewhere else, we can kill him. And if we can kill him, the rest of the people give up. And we can go back to the way it used to be because that's what we wanna do. And that's what you have to understand that Satan's gonna try to do to you. Right when you're about to be right where God wants you to be, he's gonna do this. And you've gotta avoid distractions. That's the third point. You've gotta avoid the distractions of what Satan is gonna try to do to make you stop, to make you give up. And in Nehemiah 6, this is what it says. It says, now when it was reported that Sambalat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors in the gates. And so what happens when they're saying no breach, that means there was no gaps in the wall. It was complete. They had it solid around. The only thing he had to do was put the gates back on. And this is what he said. He said, then Samballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come, come on, come on, Nehemiah. I know we've had some tough times in the past, but you know, why don't you come down? Come down and let's meet together in, in Chephrim uh, in the plain of Ono. There's probably a Starbucks there and we can, you know, we can just have coffee and you know, kind of work this thing out. Let's just talk. But he says, but they were planning to harm me. Nehemiah knew what was going on. Remember last week I was telling you about how Satan knows what to dangle in front of you to get your attention? Well, that's what they were trying to do. They were just trying to distract him, trying to distract him. Don't you wish every time Satan tried to distract you, he was trying to get you to a place called Ono? Because that's really what it is. That's what really should happen. Every time when you see Satan dangling something in front of you, you need to remember this. Oh, no, I don't need this. And that's what, that's what Nehemiah was saying. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not going there. They're gonna hurt me. They're gonna hurt me. So he doesn't, he doesn't do that. And this is what he sent back. And let me just tell you, what he sent back to them can change your life. What he said to these guys, to his enemies, can change your life. You need to circle this in your, in your Bibles. You need to mark it in your Bibles. You need to write this down, put it on your, your, your mirror in the bathroom. What he said, he said, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. He said, I'm doing a great work. I'm doing what God wants me to do and I'm not going to stop what I'm doing to come down to you. That's what we say to Satan every time he tries to stop us when we're doing what God wants to do. I'm doing a great work. I want you to think about your marriage. Think about how that can change your marriage. It's the fact that you go, here's my marriage. I'm doing a great work, and I'm not gonna let anything distract me from messing this up. I'm doing a great work in my family. And I'm not gonna let anything distract me to mess up my family. I'm doing a great work in my finances. I've got it in order. I've got everything. I'm putting God first in every way. I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna let anything make me come down and distract me to mess this up. It'll change your life. Let me leave you with this. James 4, 7, it says, submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. See, the distractions are trying to make you change your priorities. That's what he's trying to do. When you submit yourself to God, when you make God first and you resist the devil, you say, oh no, I ain't going there. He'll give up. He'll give up because he knows there's somebody else that he can distract. So he's gonna give up on you. And that's what we see happens. Yeah, I love that. That's such a great um, lesson for us in life when you're doing something great for God um, don't be distracted by good. Um, because sometimes even good things that come our way, we have to say, oh no, because we have to continue to do great for God. And so um, 
Rob, I love Nehemiah, and there's so much to this. And we are actually only to chapter six, and Nehemiah goes for 13 chapters. And so we're gonna stick around. Um, we got lunch coming in, and we're just gonna keep going. I'm just kidding. Um, but I would highly recommend that you go and you read the whole book of Nehemiah. Um, just a couple, like a chapter a day or something. It won't take you very long, but it's so insightful. And I know the big thing is we've been talking about the wall is, did they get the wall completed? Yes, they did. But the thing is, how long did it take them? And I asked people around the office. I asked some of my family members what their guess was on how long it took them to build the wall around Jerusalem. I mean, this is a massive city and it had been, you know, in ruins for so long. And so I had all kinds of guesses. I had 100, I had um, 50, I had three years, I had five years. It was all over the board. So I want you to think for just a second um, what your guess, don't say it out loud, but what, how long do you think it took Nehemiah and the people to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. All right, that's all I'm gonna give you. All right, we're gonna read and see how long. Nehemiah 6, it says, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. I loved that. When they heard how long it took them to complete the wall, all the enemies, the ones that were trying to stop them, distract them and come after them, were scared. They lost their self-confidence, and I want you to hear why, because it's so important. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. There's no way, the enemy knew, there's no way this wall could have been done in that quick of a time by themselves. They knew that God's hand, God's favor, and God's presence was with them to help the whole time. And I'm here to, to share some hope with you today. Mm -hmm. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, you call yourself a Christian because that same help, that same power, you and I have as well. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives within us, which means this. Whatever God has called us to build up, we can take on because with God, nothing is impossible. So the question is, what is it in your life that God is calling you to build up? Because I'm telling you, we all have stuff that we need to build up. Is it something you see in our community that has broken your heart and God is maybe stirring you to go help build something up? Is it something in our church that you see that you wanna be a part of so you can help build it up? Is it something across the world that your heart breaks for when you see it on the news or you hear about it, and maybe God's calling you to be a part of the solution and help build something up. Or maybe it's something in your own house. Maybe it's something that you're dealing with. Maybe it is the marriage that we've talked about. Maybe it is your finances. Um, maybe it is things going on in your family, or maybe it is your faith. Whatever it is, I'm here to tell you you can take it on and you can build it up, not because of you, but because of the God who is with you. There is nothing that he cannot, he cannot take on. There's nothing that he can't build up. So I wanna, I wanna make a plea that this morning, you ask God not only to reveal to you what is broken in your life, but you allow him to come and help you, help you be a part of the solution. But it starts with us, just like the people when Nehemiah talked to him, it starts with us saying these words, let us rise up and build. 
Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the word that you have given to us this weekend. We're thankful for the example of Nehemiah, someone who came down from a high place to serve and help save God's people. And that's exactly what you did with your son, Jesus. You sent him from a high place to come down and to seek and save the lost, which is us. God, I pray for those of us today who don't have a relationship with you, that maybe for the first time that we would we believe in our hearts and confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord so we can be saved and have a relationship with you. And those of us who do have a relationship with you, I pray that we would really search and seek what is broken in our lives, what um, is in our lives that we know you want to be better. And God, I pray with all that we are, we make that decision to stand up and to build something great with you and for you. We love you so much. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.